All right, uh, go to um, Judges chapter 1 in your Bibles, and uh, we're going to read this together, the section we're going to study tonight, and then we'll hopefully spend about 20 minutes uh, just kind of going over all the different pieces of it, and uh, then we'll open it up for questions after that. So Judges chapter 1, uh, I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 21 of this section. So it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the, hand, the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, likewise, will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. And now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahimim and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. Bring me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of the Palms in the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah, and they devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron, who was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jezubites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jezubites had lived there with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. I'm going to just open us in prayer, and then we will get into this text. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us in your word. Uh, we know that your word is inspired, it is inerrant, um, it is profitable for us, uh, both the Old and the New Testament, uh, things we understand and that we don't, and I pray that um, as we approach ancient texts that are thousands of years old, removed from our culture, that you would help us to see what you have for us in those texts, um, that we would be attentive and careful with your word, um, and we would seek to understand um, what is even uh, true for us today that we can learn from about you and about uh, your people, Lord. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So, um, 
something that is probably important to address on the front end uh, with the book of Judges is kind of like a brief introduction, like why we're doing the book of Judges. So we've been in Luke for a while, and we're going to be in Luke for a much longer period of time than we've been. Um, and so the book of Judges offers us a little break in pace, but not so much of a break in pace, because both Judges and Luke are historical narratives. So they tell us history, but they also tell it to us in narrative fashion. So, you know, we, we learn about the life of Jesus in a historical commentary that also has theological comments kind of combed into it as Luke writes. The book of Judges is very similar to that. You have the people of Israel, historical narrative accounts of what happened. Some things are stated and then commented on. Some things are stated and just kind of left as is. And that kind of leaves us with a messy narrative kind of history of the people of Israel. And so we're going to pick up the book of Judges because it's close enough to what we're doing where it's not too big of a shift in pace. Um, but it's also removed in a different time, in a different culture. Um, same God, but moving uh, at a different point in redemptive history. Uh, and the other reason why the book of Judges is because um, Judges is a book that tells us about what happens to the people of God uh, when they don't listen to what God says. And so one of the questions that... Uh, we, we kind of kick around all the time is, is God's law good for people even if they're not believers? Or is God's law good for a country just in general? Or is it only good and profitable for people who believe that it's good and profitable like believers? And I think the book of Judges firmly establishes for us, uh, as you'll see as it unfolds, that it's either God's word or lawlessness. Those are really the two options society has. And any society that doesn't adhere to God's word is on a path to lawlessness. And that's true with the people of Israel. So in the book of Judges, it covers about 350 years. And in that short period of time, we go from the most uh, successful point in terms of obedience and faithfulness and goodness and uh, success, you know, in obeying the commands of God to worse than Sodom and Gomorrah at the end of the book of Judges. And if that can happen to the people of Israel in 350 years, we should take careful heed as to the, the overall message and the narrative that the, the author is trying to convey to us. Now, there's a lot more that could be said in Introduction to Judges, but I think uh, as I was diving into some of the commentaries, uh, many people said that um, some of the best things that we can do is just kind of get into the text and get messy with it, and then let the biblical authors tell us what the introduction is to be and how they frame the book. So the first thing that we see here in Judges um, is that it tells us that it's after the death of Joshua. Now that's significant because Joshua is, to this point, the most successful leader in Israel's history. Now Moses is portrayed as kind of the, the head guy in Israel's history, but if you look and compare Moses and Joshua to each other, Joshua, at least in terms of what we have in an account, is far more faithful, far more obedient, far more successful in his leadership over the people of Israel. Moses has the ragtag group of people that rebels against God and is stranded in the wilderness. He doesn't even get to enter the promised land. But Joshua enters the promised land, is one of the few faithful people who is alive during that time that gets to enter it, and successfully rallies the people for an entire generation to be obedient to God's law. And with very little exception, the book of Joshua reads in that direction. And just like how Moses passes the baton to Joshua and kind of gives closing exhortations in the book of Deuteronomy, Joshua does the same thing to the people of Israel in the closing accounts of his book. And so if you'll turn with me to Joshua, 13, or Joshua 23... Um, Joshua charges the, the leaders over Israel's tribes um, to remain obedient to the commands of God. 
So it's in Joshua 23 and verse 2. So it says, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and its officers. And he said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven them out before you, great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So that's what uh, Joshua says to the people. And shortly after that, he passes away. That's where we pick up in chapter one of Judges. And so you see then the people charged with this responsibility to remain obedient. And the very first thing that they do after Joshua dies is they inquire of the Lord and they say, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight for them? So this is a strange part of the book because when Moses transition is passing away, he directly passes the baton to Joshua. But when Joshua passes away, he doesn't pass it to any one leader. He kind of charges it generally to the leaders over the tribes. And so the, then these leaders of the tribes go to inquire of God after Joshua passes away. They say, who shall go up for us? And the Lord says to them that, that it's going to be Judah who shall go up. Behold, I've given this land into his hand. And so this is not referring to Judah, the person. This is referring to Judah, the tribe. Okay, Judah, the person has been long gone at this point in time in Israel's history. So uh, that's confusing because they kind of use it almost like a person's name, but this is referring to Judah the tribe. And so Judah is the tribe that's going to go before and kind of lead the charge to finish off the conquest of the promised land. And Judah doesn't do this alone. You'll notice that in verse 3, Judah turns to Simeon, his brother, and says, come with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And if you do that, I will likewise go with you into the territory with you. And you'll see that again down in verse 17 of chapter 1, that after this first initial set of encounters, then Judah goes with Simeon, his brother, and then he reciprocates that part of the deal. So you see that the very first thing in this section is God has a promise for Judah. God promises Judah that he's going to be with them. He's going to lead them to finish off this conquest. And this is not something that uh, we're to see as J J uh, Joshua was incomplete and now Judah has to finish it off. This is seen as kind of a necessary continuation. And so Judah goes and takes up the mantle, asks for Simeon's help, and goes to complete this conquest. And uh, Judah, you'll remember, is the tribe where the king of Israel eventually comes from. It's actually Judah who we're told is, that's where the scepter resides and that's where the scepter isn't going to depart from. And so it is significant that Judah is the first tribe that leads the charge after Joshua passes away. And then the second thing you see, and you'll see this in verse 4, uh, that it is God who gives the victory. 
So you see that God promises Judah the victory and then God gives the victory to Judah. In verse 4, it says, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now the reason I point that out is because we're not to understand this as the people winning battles and doing what they want to do and then backfilling in a divine call. Many modern scholars of these Old Testament books will say that the people of Israel were conquesting the land, they wanted this land, and in order to justify this, they tell all their people that God told them to do all these things. But the, the biblical book never leaves that room. It almost seems like the people don't want to be doing these things. It's their natural inclination to not go into the land, and God calls them to do that. And then God gives over these people into their hands, and it's almost like God is the moving factor the whole time. So from a human idea, you would see this and you would see the people moving and conquesting the land. But from a more defined, sovereign set of eyes, God is giving these wicked people over into the hands of Judah, Judah and Simeon. And this, is, this brings up one of the first problems that we see in Judges, which is what we would call like the moral problem of these conquests. And so I'll just comment on that briefly, but there's so much more to be said about that that we'll comment on as we go through this book. Um, the moral concern is that uh, you know, why would God command Israel to essentially genocide whole groups of people for seemingly no reason, right? That's a, that's a pretty significant question, right? It seems like they're just going into this land. The people haven't provoked the Israelites, so why are the Israelites attacking the people? And if you look at Scripture to see where does Scripture tell us why this is happening, there's a few places we can turn to. The first is in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses tells the people why they're going into the promised land. So if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, we can see kind of the first inclination of where this comes from. Because Moses wants to make very clear that the people of Israel don't get prideful about what's being given to them. So Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, says, Do not say in your heart that after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, quote, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may, be, that he may conform the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 6, just in case they missed it. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So the reason why the conquest happens is not because the Israelites are particularly righteous and God is rewarding them with a neutral territory. The Israelites are, in a very real sense, the tool that God uses to exact justice over these other peoples. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you'll see the exact set of sins that these people are guilty of. I'm just going to highlight one of these sins. Deuteronomy 18, and we'll be in verse, it's, the section is verse 9 to 14. But I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer who, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And then it tells us, And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So these Canaanite peoples, these peoples that dwell in the promised land, are not a neutral group of people. In fact, when God is speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15, 
he says that for a period of time, the people of Israel are going to dwell in Egypt as slaves because the full sin of the Amalekite people is not yet complete. But when that sin is complete, the people of Israel are led out of Egypt. They're led through the promised land, and then they're led to be God's hand or God's tool to exact his wrath on the people. And so we see that God is going to uh, deliver justice to these people. And we'll have time to look at this very first account of God's justice to the people. And you'll see that in verse 5, verses 5 through 7. So you see verse 5, they find uh, this guy whose name is Adonai Bezek. Now what that means is the Lord of Bezek. We refer to God as Adonai. The people of Israel refer to God as Adonai. Adonai means Lord. So they refer to this king calls himself Adonai Bezek, which means he's the Lord of Bezek. That's not his name, that's his title. So they find the king of this land and they fight against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites and were told that this Adonai Bezek is the one who's kind of heading the front against the people. And while these armies are being defeated, he makes his escape. He gets out of there, he runs away. But it tells us that uh, Judah and um, Simeon's forces, they catch him. And then what they do is something pretty interesting is they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, if it was to just stop there, we would have probably no idea why they did that. Now, culturally in this time, that could have been understood maybe by the people. Like maybe that's a common punishment. But as 21st century readers, that would make very little sense to us. But in God's good graces, we have verse 7 here to explain to us what is particularly righteous about this judgment. And in verse 7, we see that it's not anyone else who says this, by the way. It's the guy whose thumbs and toes were just cut off, who says, in reflection on what just happened to him, that 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. So he, he's saying he did this to other people. And what he says is, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And so he, he, the king of these foreign peoples, recognizes Yahweh's judgment on him as a righteous judgment. Now they don't go beyond this. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. They exact exactly what he tells them to do. And it's exactly the same thing that he used to do to other kings when he conquered them. So this is an example in the book of Judges of the people of Israel being God's uh, exact, swift hand of judgment. And God's judgment is very just in that it is, it is perfect in every sense, right? So in this case, he gets exactly what he's done. And this, is, by the way, doesn't change between Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. But in James 2.13, we see that God, that God, through James, says to the one who shows no mercy, no mercy will be shown, which is the same principle of justice. This king conquers other people, he doesn't, he doesn't treat their kings nicely. He cuts off their thumbs and their toes. And God says, as you have done to these people, I do to you through my servants, the people of Israel. And so in, in many senses, as we, as we read through this book, the book itself justifies for us the kind of moral problems that otherwise would kick up in the text, right? So we see, we see that all throughout this book, but most particularly here with this king. And I think that uh, should bring us to uh, at least a point of reflection um, and then we can open this up for, for questions. Um, but the, the thing that, that, that I want to kind of leave you with is um, we, we see the people of Israel and this point in redemptive history being used as a tool for God's judgment. And then we know that at some point in history, some point down this line, there's going to be a break in their faithfulness, which is going to lead eventually hundreds of years from now, other 
ungodly nations, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, being used as God's tool to avenge the people of Israel for their injustice. So the question of like reflection or ponderance that we can pick up even early on in Judges is where do they start to go wrong? Where do you see the people start to go wrong? Because we know that this sin doesn't happen drastically overnight. It starts somewhere, and if we can identify where that somewhere is, where it was still correctable, maybe, just maybe, we can learn from that in our own lives, in our own churches, in our own faithfulness to God, so that when we identify that minor slippage, we use biblical terms to identify it, as opposed to identifying it as, you know, not complete faithfulness. We can identify it as sinful, and then we can address it as such. Because if the people of Israel recognize their first slip for what it is, maybe they could have corrected it. But you'll see as we go throughout Judges, that first slip isn't recognized, the second slip isn't recognized. They become increasingly complacent and lackadaisical and comfortable. And it is that that becomes poisonous to them and over hundreds of years leads to their continued cycle of unfaithfulness. And so that's what we're going to see as we dive uh, into Judges. So I'm just going to close this in prayer and then we'll just open this up for Q&A as we usually do. So, Father God, I thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, it is your grace to give us uh, this evening to study your word, um, to study your, your text your, that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to um, help us to see uh, with your eyes uh, what you have for us in this text, Lord, to make our hearts sensitive uh, to your words, Lord, and that these would be challenging and profitable uh, and beneficial things that we are learning in your word. Um, Lord, we submit uh, our minds and our hearts to you uh, for you to reveal things to us. Um, and for you to have your way uh, now as you did uh, in the book of Judges, and that we could be faithful uh, and learn from uh, this book. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.